Before we get started, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or to spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible, and growing our audience will ensure that Big Biology episodes keep coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and to comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through our website. And now, here's the show. On Big Biology, we've devoted many episodes to the nuances of evolution, including ideas like agency, niche construction, epigenetics, and epistasis. Prominent among these, and maybe most prominent, is the idea of phenotypic plasticity, which describes how phenotypic variation arises from the effects of genetic and environmental forces acting together. An example of plasticity. The fur color of an arctic hare depends on day length. In some populations, hares molt so that they have dark fur in the long days of summer when their backgrounds are dark, but white fur in the short days of winter when backgrounds are likely to be snowy. In other words, the effects of the genes that control fur color change based on environment, in this case day length. And whether or not that plasticity matches hares to their backgrounds strongly affects whether they have lunch or are lunch. Of course, within a population, patterns of plasticity can differ from one individual to another. For hares, individuals differ in their sensitivity to changing day lengths and how capable they are of producing the right color at the right time. And it's this issue about phenotypic plasticity that today's guests, evolutionary biologists David Fennig and Nick Levis, challenge us to consider. David and Nick argue that plasticity plays central roles in the evolutionary process. We talked theory with them first and then turned to their work on an amazing and a bit scary and uh, cannibalistic set of frog species that they've used to examine a long-standing but poorly understood idea about evolution, what they call plasticity-led evolution. So what this tells us is that plasticity is really a ubiquitous feature of living things. And so one of the challenges for those of us who study plasticity, like Nick and I do, is to sort of figure out how plasticity fits within modern biology. That's David Finnig. So it seems like the carnivore morph might be a redeployment of some of the ancestral machinery for plastic development time. So lots of frogs can adjust their development time depending on pond hydrology. And so redeploying some of these ancestral functions might have been what led to the carnivore development. And that's Nick Levis. One of their big questions, where does novelty come from in populations? If your first thought is mutation, you're at least partly right. That's an important part of the standard evolutionary view on the origin and spread of new traits. But our guests argue that plasticity might lead the way in evolution, an idea championed in the past by Conrad Waddington, Mary Jane West Everhart, and many others. In a nutshell, David and Nick argue that evolution occurs when plastic responses enable individuals to endure some harsh or unusual new conditions. In those new conditions, though, individuals within a population will, via plasticity, produce a wide range of different phenotypes. Some of these new phenotypes will be advantageous and others will not. But the key thing is that the variation is now exposed to natural selection. Which can then go to work on it. The outcome can be stable new patterns of plasticity. And in some cases, selection can even canalize the new phenotypes such that they ultimately come to be expressed even without the environmental driver that instigated them in the first place. Their work provides one of the most rigorous tests yet of the idea that plasticity leads evolution with no shortage of empirical twists and turns. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology.
Um, so thanks so much to Nick Levis and David Fennig for joining us on the show. Um, real pleasure to have you on, and we're looking forward to talking about all things plasticity and all things spadefoot. Maybe let's start just by having you guys uh, just, I think many of our listeners know what plasticity is, but maybe just describe in a nutshell, what, what is plasticity and why is it important? Plasticity is one of those things where everybody is already familiar with it, but nobody seems to really understand it very well. And so I, I think a good sort of broad definition of plasticity is it's the ability of an individual organism to alter its features in response to changes in its environment. So sometimes scientists will define it more narrowly as the ability of a single genotype to produce multiple phenotypes in response to changes in the environment. Uh, but it's often good to think about it as sort of a, a characteristic of, a, of an organism. And so it, it's something that we're all familiar with, right? And so if you um, uh, get out in the sun, of course, your skin uh, will turn darker, you know, tan. If you work out with weights, you know, you'll get larger muscles. So those are all familiar examples of plasticity. But there are many examples that we know of in the, in the natural world, too. So think about Arctic animals like Arctic foxes, Arctic hares, organisms like that change colors, you know, seasonally where they're white, you know, during the winter and then they turn brown or gray during the summertime, you know, they change in response to change the environment. And one of the things that scientists have discovered in the last uh, just decade or so is that all organisms, or at least all major groups of organisms, from bacteria to mammals, have the ability to undergo changes in their patterns of gene expression in response to multiple changes in the environment. So changes like temperature or diet can cause changes in terms of uh, when particular genes are active and then how much product those genes produce, how much uh, protein or, or RNA those genes produce. So what this tells us is that plasticity is really a ubiquitous feature of living things. It's really, I think, a defining feature of life. And so one of the challenges for those of us who study plasticity, like Nick and I do, is to sort of figure out how plasticity fits within modern biology. Because as, as everybody knows, biology has really become uh, a story about the role that genes play and determining how organisms develop, how they function, and, and how they evolve. And so evolution in particular is very uh, gene-focused, gene-centric. And of course, this is a, a vestige of the uh, amalgamation of Darwin's ideas with uh, Mendel's discoveries of, of the gene that happened around the same time in the, the middle part of the 19th century, and it's continued to this day. And so those of us in evolutionary biology in particular are you know, tasked with figuring out, you know, how this ubiquitous phenomenon fits within sort of our framework for understanding the natural world. And so you asked, how, why is it important? Well, we think it can be important in a number of different ways. And so one way that seems to be relatively uncontroversial, although this isn't, you know, unanimously agreed upon, is that because plasticity is often, but not always, but it's often beneficial to individual organisms that can help them deal with variation in their environment by producing a better match for their environment and thereby enhancing their, their own chances of surviving and reproducing, that it may also benefit entire populations and help those populations to persist and deal with environmental change. So it's long been thought that plasticity might play an important role in biology and basically just buying time, allowing uh, lineages to persist um, so that they don't go extinct. There are other ideas of how plasticity can impact evolution, but, um, but basically we think it probably plays a, a, an underappreciated role in evolution. 
Here's something I thought about with respect to plasticity some, since I'm a physiologist myself, and that is, you know, people think about plasticity over different timescales, right? There's developmental plasticity, so things that develop over the course of the juvenile period and are are fixed later in life versus reversible kinds of plasticity. And I think you mentioned some of those. But if you go to like a really extreme sort of short-term time period, like, you know, if I get up from this room and go out for a jog and my heart rate goes up, do you consider that change in heart rate to be a form of plasticity? I do, yes. I, th- I, I would lump all those in with plasticity. Okay, so, so any sort of phenotypic change over short or long-term, reversible or irreversible, you would call plasticity. Okay, great. I, I, that, that's how I think about it, but I didn't know how, you know. Is, is it worth like distinguishing those two kinds or, or not? I mean, if you're trying to define it differently, you can. Like as you were mentioning, there's the fixed, what sometimes people call developmental plasticity is whenever... It, that early life period, and then you're stuck with it. Or sometimes you hear flexibility in terms of more reversible or reversible plasticity. Implications of some of those could differ depending on when they're expressed in terms of like the reproduction of the individual. But for most of, I think what David and I think about, we don't make a huge distinction. I think in science, it's always better to start out as broad as possible and all as encompassing as possible when you're discussing some phenomenon. And you can always restrict it down later. Um, but you know, one of the one of the problems I see in science a lot, not just in biology, this goes on physics, it goes on chemistry, is you know, people often be talking past each other because they're talking about the same phenomenon, but maybe at a slightly different level, you know, or a slightly different, like you're talking about with plasticity, a different time frame. Um, and so I just think it's better to just say, look, you know, any sort of change in an organism's features in response to a change in its environment, we're going to dub as plasticity. And then you can sort of parse out things like reversible or irreversible or developmental or, you know, physiological, behavioral, you know, whatever you want to do later on. I think that's fine. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm philosophically inclined to just totally agree with that. Like I, I'm a lumper by personality. So nice way to start. I, I, would, I mean, I think I'm a lumper too, probably to a fault most of the time. But in line of where we're going to go, we can't jump the gun on the plasticity first evolution concept because, well, we haven't even described it yet. But Nick, something you said just a minute ago, the the timescale over which these kinds of things happen, I mean, that that would, it just seems intuitive that there are ramifications, evolutionary ramifications for that. There's a developmental plasticity. You sort of get one shot in your life where selection is going to make a difference, whereas something like heart rate, you know, there's many, many, many opportunities where plasticity is going to intervene over the span of the, the lifetime of the organism. So in one way, it makes sense to define plasticity in, a, in an inclusive way, but it but it does seem that there may be some different implications of the various forms, and maybe that's something we can circle back to. Um, so if that's good with you guys, is it time to, to switch to plasticity first evolution? I think you guys are proposing this concept in the context of how, how does evolution happen and what comes first? The conventional way, but you tell me if I've got this wrong, the conventional way of thinking about evolution is usually that some mutation shows up in a population, provides the opportunity for selection and populations diversing thereafter. But the plasticity first hypothesis is a little bit different. You get a plastic response to an environmental change, and then several things happen downstream for populations to evolve. I'm not going to steal your thunder on that that part. But is that right, or, or how would you frame the plasticity first uh, evolutionary hypothesis relative to conventional ways of thinking about evolution. Yeah, so I can speak to that a little bit. I think you nailed the big picture right on the head where it's typically thought of a mutation-led 
or de novo mutations giving rise to some new trait or bout of evolution. Or you might have evolution from standing genetic variation, so variation that exists. In both those cases, obviously, mutation is the, the fodder for selection. But plasticity-led evolution, so sorry, we're probably going to fall into saying plasticity-led instead of plasticity first. And that was more just, we can get into why David and I made that verbal switch. But part of this issue is what comes from mutations are obviously the, the first thing that comes up, but they may, aren't, may not be the most important. But evolution from standing genetic variation is plasticity-led evolution is a branching off or an extension of that and one way of thinking about it, where you have a pool of variation and not all of it isn't necessarily relevant in the current environmental context. And so then you have some environmental change exposing that variation through development or through the response to that environmental change. And if individuals vary in that developmental response, then you have the fuel for selection. And so it's that interaction between the pool of genetic variation with the environmental change that is starting the bout of evolution. And that can be contrasted where you have a de novo mutation that gives you access to a new environment. And so a popular example from a few years ago is the water striders where they this genus evolved a fan that helps them turn and navigate flowing streams more easily. And they traced the origins of that to a gene duplication. And so that allowed them to come move into a new environment. And those mutations are restricted to that taxon only. And so that's like a case of mutation-led or taxon-specific evolution, whereas plasticity-led is the environmental changing interacting with standing genetic variation and development is the impetus. And that's why we're saying lead because that's what's providing like the, the engine for it rather than necessarily first in the, the strictest sense of being first. So, so if I could just art articulate this in the terms of the water strider example. So if it was plasticity lead, which you just said it's not, then there would be some environmental condition that would lead water striders to develop these fans and that, that many, many populations could do that under the right circumstances. And so it's sort of like an environmentally induced phenotype that then becomes visible to, to selection. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah. A completely hypothetical scenario could be like there was a flood or something, and now there's a lot more flowing water than maybe the ancestral population was used to. And some individuals respond by developing more band legs or something like that. And then that would be refined by selection as opposed to like these new mutations enabling the jump. I mean, you know, it's worth pointing out that in this example, the water starters that Nick's talking about, you know, we can't totally rule out the idea that plasticity-led evolution played a role there as well. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's sort of a continuum there, right? These are, you can, you can think of these as mutually exclusive, but they're probably not often mutually exclusive. And we can probably, we can maybe get into this later on with the spadefoot example, but we find there that we find actually evidence for both plasticity-led and mutation-led evolution acting on different traits, you know, because many times you're dealing with complex phenotypes that are sort of comprised, you know, of component traits, you know, that, that go into that complex phenotype. So I think in that water starter example, that's a beautiful example. I've used it in my teaching. It's a, it's a very lovely example, but you can't entirely rule out the idea that plasticity-led evolution didn't play a role there as well. So yeah, there's probably variation in the ability of the original individuals to develop a fan. And that's something where I have had a little bit of difficulty is saying, what is plasticity-led evolution up against? Because you get that question a lot, like, well, what's the alternative? And that's, I think, where we kind of settled here is that it's just, this is kind of how evolution happens, where you have developmental responses being selected on. 
whether that response is induced by a new mutation or the environment is kind of where the, the differences come in. And I think that's something that Mary Jane West Eberhard tries to talk about in her book is like, this is just how adaptive evolution occurs, not necessarily against some other view, which maybe it was, would be a strict mutation and then bam, that's how it happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe let's talk about the history of these ideas just for a moment. So the other person who comes immediately to mind is is Waddington and work on Drosophila wings and heat shock and that kind of thing. So how, how similar is your idea, plasticity-led evolution, to the ideas that they were articulating? So so I'll, I'll go first. I'll let Nick chime in. I mean, I, I think that we certainly would never claim that these ideas, the plasticity-led evolution, plasticity first, is is novel to us. I mean, we basically are just taking ideas that others had proposed, like Mary Jane, like Waddington, like Schmalhausen, um, Baldwin. I mean, you can keep going back, you know, had had articulated at various points in time. I think the, you know, the real motivation for, for producing the paper that sort of introduced this idea of plasticity-led evolution, the, the, the 2016 tree article, was, was frankly a little bit of frustration over the um, inability of the field to sort of dis- decide what were the key criteria and what were the critical predictions we need to go out and test, you know, and so we really were interested in figuring out how when you just boil all these ideas down, and if you're interested in evaluating the role that plasticity plays in facilitating evolution, you know, we were asking ourselves, well, what would you, if you were a beginning graduate student like Nick was, what would you actually go out, what kind of data would you collect? And we, we wanted to be agnostic about this. You know, we didn't want to sort of argue in favor of this idea. We wanted to be fully open to the idea that, well, maybe plasticity doesn't do anything to evolution. Maybe, maybe the critics are right. And so we were really interested in coming up, as I said, with a scheme, a set of criteria, a set of critical predictions, um, and me- methods for testing these uh, uh, predictions. We really were interested in setting up a, a framework for, for doing that. I think to also complement the timing of everything, there was a recent paper that came out in Nature when I started grad school, the point-counterpoint. And basically the bottom line was, if we want to see how important plasticity is in evolution, we need more tests, especially in natural populations. So like Wadding had shown, Waddington had shown in fruit flies that this process can happen, but that doesn't tell us that it has or how relevant it is to actually how things are evolving in the real world or out in nature. And so that's why we also focused on in natural populations and trying to distinguish and lay criteria for boots on the ground folks trying to do experiments on, on these ideas. You guys, I think it's going to be difficult for listeners to track the four different criteria. So we're going to ask you to talk about those without talking about those. <laughs> uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the crux of this argument comes down to the the variation, right? I mean, and so in your case, I think your point two is that this plastic response exposes the, reveals some portion of the genotypes, something you call cryptic genetic variation that wasn't really of that much evolutionary consequence historically, right? And so from there, there can be genetic evolution because there's genetic variation that was real revealed that otherwise wouldn't have played a role. Is that right? Or, I mean, how, what's a better way to frame cryptic genetic variation? I think that's right. I mean, so I think that actually the four criteria are fairly easy to just spell out. Um, and actually, I, I agree with you, Marty. That is probably the most critical one that the, the one that you just specified it's actually though the hardest one to evaluate because 
you're often, and I'm gonna maybe get a little bit technical here before we just talk about it, but you know, often since we don't have a time machine, you know, you're gonna be using some sort of proxy for that ancestral form that you think might've started this off. And so going out there and saying, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna look at an ancestor proxy and I'm going to see if it displays, if it shows any evidence of cryptic gene variation in the trait of interest when you expose it to some novel environment. Well, I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why that variation might be exhausted, might not be there. And so finding that variation is nice, but not finding it is not particularly conclusive, you know? And so, but anyway, the, fir the first criterion is simply that under this plasticity-led evolution scenario, you would expect that um, you should find some evidence that the focal trait that you're interested in was environmentally induced in that ancestral lineage. So in other words, this whole thing got started off by plasticity, right? And then the second criterion is that, that what that plasticity did was it exposed cryptic or hidden genetic variation because individuals respond to that change in the environment differently. Some individuals might respond by producing, say, if you're talking about like the water fan or the, the you know, uh, striders we're talking about, Mogoda, they might produce bigger water fans. Some might produce smaller water fans. Some might not respond at all to that change in the environment. So that's the hidden genetic variation. And then third criterion is that you should find some evidence that trait has evolved, you know, over time. Um, and then the fourth criterion is simply that you should find evidence that that, that, that trait has evolved as a result of selection, right? Because there are non-selective reasons why plasticity or traits that are subject to plasticity might evolve. And so that's that's basically the framework right there. Yeah, that's a great compact overview. Yeah, that was it. as compact as it gets, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> boil it, well, you could boil it down to two. There's the induction and then the refinement, right? The induction is plasticity and then refinement by selection. Okay, the, the ultimate compaction, yeah. Um, so so let me just ask about that, that first one, which is pretty interesting. So you're saying that there needs to be evidence in the ancestral population that, that there is something inducible by some environmental shift. But of course, like you can't go back in time and revisit that ancestral population. And so you do this thing of looking at sister populations or sister species, right? Is that is that how you go back in time? Right. And so, so like Nick was saying earlier, you know, you can show this in the lab, right? So people do ex beautiful experimental evolution studies, including looking at some of these ideas and can make strong arguments for that. But I believe it was actually David Wake who made the comment to give him credit, the late David Wake, you know, that this idea that, you know, he, he thought genetic simulation was a cool idea, but he said, you know, showing it happens in the lab is not the same thing as showing it has happened in nature. And more importantly, showing that it has happened in nature and led to some ecologically relevant, important trait evolving in nature. And so, so really what uh, we were interested in doing is coming up again with a framework whereby you could apply this, as Nick said earlier, to natural populations, where you're not going to probably have those um, ancestors that are still with you, those extant forms. Except maybe in the cases of like a seed bank or other things where you might have refugia and you can do a resurrection type study. Or maybe like a range expansion. As like your... what you study, Marty. Yeah, so exactly. Maybe... Yeah, I was, I was going to say range expansions. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe range expansions could be okay. <laughs> range expansions are the most important way to study this altogether. So anyone doing that. You know? Oh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark you down as having said that, Nick. <laughs> yeah, so can, I, can we come back to what you just said, Nick? I mean, it's interesting that the paper is about four, and yet you said that it can, it can be two. One thing that in talking about the evolution of plasticity or plasticity-led evolution that's always perplexed me is it always seems to be that one of the criteria of this as a meaningful phenomenon is that we have to have 
demonstrable genetic evolution, you know, a change to the genome at the end. And I just wonder, I mean, why isn't a possibility that we have the evolution of these plastic systems that allow lineages sort of not to go away because of the plasticity? I mean, if plasticity is quite effective, then it's sort of plasticity all the time, all the way down, isn't it? Why do we have to go back to assimilation or accommodation or these other words that we throw around with this idea in the first place? No, I guess, yeah, for this argument of being as inclusive as possible, like we do with our definition of plasticity, what you're referring to, I think, is sometimes called the buying time hypothesis and where a population persists and by virtue of existing, you can continue to evolve. You can't evolve if you're extinct. And so, yeah, you could make the argument by having some form of plasticity that enables you to persist. Plasticity led the way. We've typically been thinking about it as plasticity in a particular trait, facilitating the further evolution of that trait or phenotype. Whereas the persistence, the trait that allowed you to persist may not be the target of selection subsequently after you persisted. So high temperature tolerance, and then, oh, maybe now there's a new food source or something. And so you're evolving your beak or something completely differently. Whereas the plasticity led that Mary Jane kind of describes with the genetic accommodation, the genetic assimilation is a particular trait's response to a particular environment. And then the evolution of that trait into a new form or more adaptive form or having some other consequence for diversification or speciation or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, to tie it back to the thing that we talked about, this inclusive definition of plasticity, I mean, to put a, put a specific on it. When you think about physiological and behavioral forms of plasticity, I mean, a lot of those achieve their functions, right? Help populations to realize fitness because they're reversible, because they're plastic. So you guys are going to kill me for asking and listeners are going to turn this off immediately. But if we, how do we think about plasticity and plastic traits, right? If there's selection for traits that are, you know, perfectly reversible or perfectly malleable, I mean, isn't, isn't that in a sense kind of the a form, one of the holy grails that populations might aspire to. When we start to be specific about the trait, I mean, it gets complicated, but I think it gets interesting too. So I'm not sure I'm understanding your question, Marty. I think if if I'm following what you're saying, you're raising to me one of the really big mysteries in this whole field of plasticity is why would you ever lose plasticity? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, sort of. I mean, why not be perfectly plastic to all things? Yeah, it might be perfect. So I'm, I'm thinking about, let me be really specific about this. Let's say fever, right? A fever is protective, but you elevate body temperature, you change the way your immune system works, you get rid of the parasites and you go on your merry way, but you better keep doing that forever every time you get an infection or things aren't going to go well. Well, we have an adaptive immune system. That's not totally true, but that that's a an example of what I'm talking about. Turn up your body temperature, turn it down when the time is right, and then do it again next time. So that's selection for the sort of optimum reversibility, or not optimum, but an effective reversibility, right? Yeah, no, I mean, this is something, again, if I'm following you, that we have struggled with ourselves, and a lot of people have, you know, which is that why don't you just maintain that perfect plasticity? That's sort of one type of plasticity's evolution, right? When you get sort of an enhancement of that plasticity, and that's what you know Mary Jane has referred to as genetic accommodation, and that's sort of one aspect of genetic accommodation. I mean, the other aspect of genetic accommodation, not to get into the jargon here, but is you know going towards losing that plasticity. So you go towards what Waddington dubbed as genetic assimilation. And that direction has always been very odd to me. I mean, why would you ever lose that plasticity? And so for a long time, people thought that what could be driving that is that, that, that there's some cost of plasticity. And as 
you folks know, um, there have been a, many efforts to try to identify costs of plasticity. And there have been some documented costs, but they tend to be fairly small. And in many cases, we just haven't been able to find costs, you know. And so unless we're completely missing something, it suggests that the that plasticity is not super costly, you know, I think is, the, is what I take from that. So there must be some other reason why evolution just doesn't take you in a direction where you maintain perfect plasticity. Maybe for some traits, maybe for, for physiological features or maybe behavioral features, or, you know, we talked earlier about gene expression being responsive, but um, maybe for other sorts of traits, especially morphological traits, um, maybe maintaining that sort of flexibility all the time is, is just not the way to go. So I want to shift now to asking about spadefoots. So um, that was a great overview of the the theory. I think what we want to do now is just apply this in a more concrete way to your group's work, your, the two of you, your work you've done on spadefoots. And David, I remember, I think I met you out in the Chiricahuas in Arizona about 10 years ago. Uh, when you were working on spadefoots out there. And and I think I think it would help just to maybe give us a little bit of the natural history of the system. What species are we talking about? And maybe say something about why those make a good system for testing these ideas. Yeah, so, um, so spadefoots are frogs. Um, they're sometimes referred to as spadefoot toads, but they're not really toads. They're actually frogs. They're actually a, a very basal group of frogs, meaning that it's a very ancient lineage. So if you look at the sort of family tree of all frogs, you know, they're down near the base of that. They are sort of their own unique group. You sort of characterize them based on various morphological features. But one of the things that sort of unites them is that they have evolved numerous adaptations that allow them to live in really, really, uh, or to breed in really, really ephemeral uh, types of settings. There's two genera of New World spadefoots. There's the genus Scaphiopus, um, and then there's the genus Spia. Um, and in the genus Spia, the four species that are currently recognized in that group all have the ability to produce a different type of tadpole um, that allows them to accelerate development. So normally, spadefoots, like most frogs and toads, when they hatch out, normally they're this sort of um, just football-shaped body form or an oval-shaped body form. They're try they're they're sort of a, got a, a very Catholic diet. You know, they basically eat anything, so they're omnivores. Uh, they tend to maybe lie along the spectrum more of an herbivorous type diet. But in this genus Spia, when if a young tadpole eats uh, meat early in its life, then some of those individuals might develop into this very distinctive form that we refer to as the carnivore morph. Um, and so the carnivore morph is characterized by, first of all, its diet. It, it tends to then specialize on meat as opposed to the omnivore diet of the other form. Um, but morphologically, it's really distinct. It gets this big head, and that's primarily caused by hypertrophication of its jaw muscles, where the jaw muscles get really dramatically enlarged. Its gut becomes really, really short. It develops this enlarged and serrated keratinized beak. So the mouth parts of the normal form are just these really thin little plates. And then on the carnivore, they become sort of like, a, like looking at a hawk's bill where it becomes really thickened and, and sharpened. Sounds horrifying if you're another tadpole. <laughs> well, they are. And, and actually what's fun is you go into the ponds where they occur and you can just feel them knob, you know, chewing on your legs, you know, and they, wow. they, they will just they'll chew on anything. Oh, wow. um, I mean, you can literally feel them. This is a missed opportunity in a horror movie, David. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there, well, they, there is a little bit of, it's kind of the horror in the amphibian world because they're they're also really cannibalistic. That's actually what drew me into this system in the first place was the cannibalism and trying to you know figure that out. 
So behaviorally, they're really different too. They're incredible. They're very, very aggressive. You know, whereas the omnivore morph is sort of very docile and gregarious. You know, they they school in large groups. The carnivore is solitary. And so when you walk up to one of these ponds, you can, if the sun's hitting right, you can just see the carnivores in the pond because they just they're these. You know, they tend to also be a lot lighter in coloration, so they lose a lot of their pigments. Um, and then they're just zipping around the pond, just very frenetically. And they lose the, the pigmentation to be camouflage. Is that a way? Well, to... we don't we don't know exactly what's going on there. What's happening is the melanophores are becoming more concentrated, and so rather than being overly dispersed, like in the omnivore, and so with the omnivore, they, they, it's sort of like gray, and they they you know they're kind of they are sort of blending into the background, uh, whereas the carnivores are becoming really light in coloration, sort of a golden color. We don't know if there's any adaptive significance to that, to be honest with you. Uh, but what I was going to say is the last important difference between the two morphs that I alluded to at the beginning is uh, the introduction of this system is that they're also really fast at developing. And so we think these the carnivore is in part an adaptation to get out of the really the most ephemeral ponds because typically these ponds might only last a week or two. And so, you know, the omnivore just can't get out fast. So that's kind of the natural history of this system. And so they're, they're, uh, What's, what's really neat about this system, though, is that if you look across the New World spadefoots, the, the expression is carnivore morph, you see at sort of different levels, right? And so you get, in, in some lineages, you get a really extreme carnivore produced. In some lineages, you get sort of kind of an intermediate carnivore produced, if you will. And then in some lineages, you get even kind of a, a weakish carnivore. And then in different lineages, like in the genus Scaphiopus, you don't get any carnivores at all. I mean, they only produce omnivores. But what's really cool is that if you take those members of Scaphiopus and you expose them to conditions that, that would normally induce a carnivore in the genus Spia, while you don't get a carnivore, you get sort of a very rudimentary version of that. You get the beginnings of that, right? And so that's, that's what's exciting about the system is that we can use this sort of comparative approach, which, you know, as I emphasize to people, this is what Darwin argued for. And he used this extensively on the Oregon species, talking about looking at the evolution of complex features like the, the eye and so forth, as he used organisms that were at these different stages to infer how evolution might have unfolded. And that's basically what we've tried to do in our lab. So, so I want to dive into you know, thinking about how this system illustrates these criteria that we just talked about earlier. But one more sort of physiological natural history question first, which is when Spia eats meat and it induces this morph, like how much meat do they have to have? Is it a single meal that will give them that morph? And, or is it is it like that's that's the food supply they have? And then what, what what's the sort of underlying signaling that happens that actually turns them into the, the carnivore morph? Well, I'll, I'll take the first part and then I'll let Nick deal okay, with the second great. part because he's done some nice work on that. But the first part is the short answer is we don't know for sure, right? How much meat it takes. And it's probably, it's like a lot of things where it probably depends, right? Depends. And we think that one thing we are pretty certain of is that there is, there seems to be a lot of underlying, now I'm going to just say for now, heritable variation include things like epigenetics that Marty's interested in because we don't know if it's totally genetic. But there appears to be a lot of heritable variation in the ability to respond to the meat diet, right? And so some lineages, some sib ships, even within the same population, some sib ships are really prone to eating meat in the first place and then responding to that meat, meat meal by producing carnivores. 
some are fairly refractory. Uh, again, that, that's why I say it depends, right? Yeah, and that's the kind of underlying variation in plasticity that you would expect in an ancestral population. Exactly, exactly. And to, to jump off of that a little bit, so you can rear these guys in the lab in a container, whatever size you like, and if you put a single individual and just flood it with shrimp, it's unlikely to become a carnivore. So it doesn't seem like it's just, because there's no pressure to eat the meat fast because you're not competing with anyone for that. So it seems like there's some social aspect or strength of competition as well, where you're, you have to get the meat quickly relative to competitors. And so it's not just titrating a certain amount of meat and then bam, you're a carnivore. And in terms of the internal cues or things that are, are actually happening to transition from one form or to the other, we did an experiment in the lab where we reared individuals on alternative diets, either like in groups with this competitive thing on meat or on detritus, and then later phenotyped different sib ships to see which ones had the greatest response. And then we're able to go back and do comparative transcriptomics to see what genes were changing prior to development of the morph, but after exposure to the Q. And we have a list of like a hundred some genes that's not super relevant to just list all those, but doing like the, the, go, the go term analysis and keg analysis, it seems like lipid metabolism is really important as you might imagine they're consuming different things, especially cholesterol biosynthesis. Um, cholesterol is a precursor to some important hormones in amphibians, especially thyroxin or thyroid hormone. So that's the major one that drive, thyroid hormone drives amphibian metamorphosis. And some of David's early work suggested that if you flood the water that the tadpoles are in with thyroxin, you can get more carnivores. And since the car carnivores develop more quickly, so it seems like the carnivore morph might be a redeployment of some of the ancestral machinery for um, plastic development time. So lots of frogs can adjust their development time depending on pond hydrology. And so redeploying some of these ancestral functions might have and then refining them and adding new things might have been what led to the carnivore development. And then we also discovered in that study that the peroxisome seems like it might be a key organelle because it has an important role with fatty acid oxidation. And so not, there's different ways that fatty acids can be oxidized in organisms. I learned a lot of this in doing that paper, um, but most of our terms were going to the, the peroxisomal pathway as opposed to other pathways. And so that was a springboard for us now to start looking if we supplement with cholesterol or and or thyroxone or try to do some sort of functional genetics on these candidate genes to try to pin down what the key signals are. Because it's tricky in some ways because it is this big composite phenotype where we have the mouth, the jaw, the gut, and some of those things develop independently of each other. So if you have a tadpole in carnivore conditions and then put it in omnivore conditions, some of those will revert back at different rates. And so there may not be this one master regulatory signal like you might have with like um, butterfly wing coloration work, disone, and these other juvenile hormone, these things seem really important for lots of those changes. That's where like this lipid metabolism and cholesterol, because they have these big systemic things, that's a good umbrella starting point. But then we might have to look more tissue specifically to see what their own unique signals are. So can you um, connect the dots back for us? I mean, this is, it, it's an absolutely amazing system and I'm not joking about the horror movie. I, I really can see horror sci-fi because these sort of plastic, you know, carnivores eating legs, that, that's just an incredible plot. But the experiment, so we've got these different lineages with different propensities for plasticity and your big four that we've already talked about. What Tell us about your Nature, Ecology and Evolution paper, Nick, and um, in a nutshell, what you did, what you found. 
Yeah, so as David outlined, we have this outgroup species, Scaphiopus. We focused on Scaphiopus hillbrookii, which was in North Carolina, easy to acquire, get it in the lab. We have the other player was Spia multiplicata, which exhibits the polyphenism pretty regularly in lots of natural ponds. And then the third player in that paper was Spia bombifrons, which it's native range, it seems like is more Nebraska, Oklahoma, the, the Great Plains. And then it's had a range expansion down into the Southwest where it's undergone character displacement with Spia multiplicata. And so in ponds where they co-occur, Spia bombifrons is almost all carnivores and Spia multiplicata is almost all omnivores. Even though in their ancestral ranges, they both produce both morphs at intermediate frequencies. And so we have this gradient of no carnivores, intermediate levels of carnivores, and then lots of carnivores in the same geographic area under similar environmental conditions. And so we started out by testing for that ancestral plasticity. So trying to capture those bullet points one and two. So we reared Scaphiobus holbrookii on a shrimp diet and on a detritus diet, measured many of the phenotypic traits that we know respond to diet and spia, found that three out of the four we measured did show a plastic response, not always adaptive and not always very robust. We also looked at gene expression. There's been a number of genes that have been identified as being morph and diet dependent in spia. So we looked at some of those. And again, several of them showed a response to diet, also not a coordinated adaptive response. But we still took this as, okay, these guys respond to the environmental cue that we suspect the ancestor experienced. And then when we compared those results to what we saw in spia multiplicata, which had been shown for many years, they show an adaptive response in all these traits and their fitness is equivalent on the two diets. Whereas the Scaphiobus albrookii in that experiment, they did their growth was poorer on a shrimp diet. So they changed, but they don't do well under the, those conditions. And we found that sib ships, um, there was like a family by um, response effect. So there's an interaction suggesting to us that there was variation among sib ships and how they respond. We followed up on that part of it in a separate paper um, with an undergraduate where we looked at more sib ships and under competitive conditions and yeah, are pretty confident that there's variation in how they respond and those individuals that respond to shrimp in a more adaptive way have a fitness advantage. So that helped fill into the story. Yeah, I mean, it's that's an amazing system. It, it's a cool story. I'll encourage everybody to read the paper. It's a, just a beautiful paper and um, you know the effort. I can imagine how much work goes into that project. So that was the first half of the paper too. <laughs> I'll let David take the second half so that I'm not just preaching to everyone. But, but wait, before you launch on that, David, um, I just want to ask one, one point of clarification, which is, so in these populations where um, multiplicata and bombifrons co-occur, you said that the bombifrons is almost all carnivore morph. So is that still plasticity that causes them to be carnivores? Or is that like become a fixed thing so that it's like a like an example of genetic accommodation, for example. So we had a follow-up study to this 2018 paper where we compared Spia bombifrons in these sympatric populations to Spia bombifrons in their ancestral range. And we found that in some of the traits, irrespective of diet, these sympatric ones were showing the carnivore morphology. So they still have these large jaw muscles, even reared on detritus. They even hatched out more carnivore-like. In the absence of ever receiving an environmental cue, they were coming out with these little jaws. They were ready to eat meat. Yeah. And they were and they were also less responsive. Nick spearheaded another paper showing that these sympatric bombifrons, which appear to be undergoing genetic assimilation, are 
at the gene expression level, um, they're less responsive to changes in the diet. You know, so if you look at patterns of gene expression where they occur outside the range of, of multiplicator, where they have an underground character space and where they produce both morphs, you know, as part of a polyphenism, you know, where they have the two morphs, you see marked differences in the gene expression profiles depending upon diets that you expose them to. And again, this is looking at expression of genes that we had other lines of evidence suggesting that were differentially expressed across these two different morphs. But if you look at that among animals from the populations that co-occur with multiplicata, where they seem to be undergoing genetic assimilation, the gene expression profiles are completely overlapping with each other. You know, it's like they've lost the plasticity in gene expression. So it suggested to us it was plastic and then as losing it. Right. And it was plastic because they, they, we should have said the, the ancestral condition, this is a species that's undergone a range expansion. So the ancestral condition is where they occur by themselves. And then the derived condition or the more recently evolved condition is where they co-occur with this other species in the desert Southwest. And there's a whole interesting story, by the way, about the range expansion that's we think what's driving that. Yeah, because this is not a desert adapted amphibian, the plains spade, which is the spiobomophrons. It's a species that's evolved, you know, under dry conditions in the Great Plains, but they're moving into a completely new biome now. And um, this is work that Kren Finnick has done, put in a plug on that, which suggests that it's what's enabling them to invade the desert biome is because of hybridization with the spiobomophrons, the Mexican spade, which is a resident there. And so it looks like there's been some capture of alleles for faster development time in the desert that have intergressed from uh, multiplicata into the bomber fronds, and that's allowed them to expand their range down there. But one thing I was going to say really quickly before I forget, because Marty keeps bringing up this horror show thing. So I don't know if y'all have seen um, any books by Bill Shutt. You know, he, so he wrote a book about vampires, but he wrote a book about cannibalism about, it came out about five or six years ago. And his opening of that book is a scene in the Chiricahuas with Nick and, 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 and my family and some of us working on the spadefoots. And so he really uses the spadefoots as an exemplar, you know, as, a, as an entree into the whole study of cannibalism. Is the, the... Awesome. That paints that grim story you're hoping for. <laughs> we, we have a big biology bookshelf. We'll make sure that gets onto the, the bookshelf. So I think we kind of answered... Um, your question, Art, about what, you know, so the the the, the other aspect, that paper, did, did we cover everything, Nick, basically? I mean, um, we didn't cover the Bombafrons to multiplicate a comparison of the paper or the, the palette spike, if you wanted to talk about that. Well, this is your story. Why don't you take the lead on that, Nick? I'll let you describe it. Okay. So I mentioned we compared Scaphiopus albrookii to Spia multiplicata on these alternative diets. Well, then we wanted to do the, the next comparison to the evolution towards cannibalization. So we sampled a whole bunch of wild-caught tadpoles and looked at their overall morphology. And comparing carnivores and the species that produces both morphs regularly, so Spia multiplicata and Allopatry, those carnivores were not as carnivore-like as Spia bombifrons in Sympatry. So the, again, this lineage where we're seeing genetic assimilation occurring are the most carnivore-like things we can find in nature. And while we were looking at these guys, we noticed there is a, um, so their mouth parts are keratin, are keratinized, but there's this other big keratinized thing that looks like a spike on the roof of their mouth or their palate that we called the palate spike and hadn't been described before. You can actually see it looking down on top of a tadpole. You can see a darkened spot like right in the middle of their head below their eyes on ones where it's really well developed. 
And so I looked at a bunch of tadpoles, seeing how that correlated with carnivore morphology. And it, the more carnivore-like you are, the more developed and dark and prominent this palate spike is. So then we also looked at that among different lineages. So Scaphiopus, omnivores, carnivores, and then these super carnivores and sympatric bombifrons. And again, it's the pattern we'd expect. These lineages that express the carnivore more, more frequently have the most developed pronounced palate spike, which is not seen in this outgroup species. And so this is getting to where David mentioned a while ago in our conversation. It seems like this involves plasticity and some de novo lineage specific changes. So we're seeing evolution of traits that we know respond to dietary cues, but then also this incorporation of this new one whose function we fully don't know. We hypothesize maybe it's involved with stabilizing or while they're trying to chew on a shrimp or another tadpole or something like that. But yeah, so it's a combination of new things, either through mutation or elaboration of existing pathways in the context of the evolution of this plastic response. So if I could just sort of summarize where I think we're at, bombifrons is the one that shows carnivore morphologies disproportionately. And when it occurs together with multiplicated, it shows almost exclusively the carnivore morph. And so if I had to sort of articulate this in terms of your scheme, there is this ancestral form of plasticity that leads to a kind of carnivore morph, but that there's been further refinement in these lineages that really sort of specialize on the carnivore morph. And now they're kind of super carnivores with a different sort of additional set of behaviors and morphologies that make them more effective at, at eating meat. Is that, is that a fair summary of? Yes. So I think of it as like a stepping stone. You have this rudimentary then evolves into a polyphenism with both forms and then loss of the alternative. And so then you're fixed for a carnivore when you started out with an omnivore. And that's the cannibalization aspect that we were just talking about. So, yeah. I wanted to zoom out a little bit um, if we can, not that the toads, frogs, uh, as it were, aren't exciting. In season one, we had Cam Gallimbor on the show. I'm pretty sure that you guys know uh, his work with guppies and, and other things. And one of the things that he's really pointed out, and I'm interested to know what you guys think about it, especially in the context of your system, is that there may be a difference between non-adaptive and maladaptive plasticity. I mean, largely we've been talking about adaptive plasticity, but intervening adaptive plasticity, I mean, you may get to adaptive via via something else. So how do you think about non-adaptive and maladaptive plasticity? Or do those have even have value in your system? Well, first of all, it's really hard to differentiate between those two, right? It's really, really hard to know what's adaptive and what's maladaptive. I mean, there's some pretty clear examples of what appear to be adaptive plasticity. Many predator-induced forms, for instance, where people have shown that, you know, where you can actually do experiments and show that that plasticity is, is adaptive under certain circumstances. Many examples, though, where people say it's clearly maladaptive, I just say, well, I don't know if we really know, right? Because it's really hard to show that something is truly maladaptive unless you can actually look at that organism. And all of the natural environments that that lineage is not just encountering today, but what it had encountered in the past, because obviously that what you're looking at is the product of past selection acting on it. And so, so I think that's always a little bit problematic. Having said that, I think that maladaptive plasticity, we have sort of suggested in our scheme of things, it probably plays a really important role in this plasticity-led evolution scenario. As Nick was pointing out earlier, a lot of the plasticity that we find in our ancestor proxy lineage, we think is probably maladaptive. And you know, in this system, we know pretty well the functional significance of the component traits that sort of make up that complex carnivore morph. 
So for instance, we think a lot of work that we've done and, and other people work on the system like Chris Ledon Reddick showed that, you know, producing a, a long gut, you know, is adaptive when you're eating low nutritive quality detritus and stuff like that. And then producing a shorter gut is adaptive when you're eating high nutritive quality meat. Well, when you expose the, the, the members of, of Scaphiopus, you know, which is that outgroup that we think is sort of representing the, the ancestral lineage, when you expose them to the meat diet, what, what Chris first found and what Nick documented also with the different species is that you get all sorts of variation revealed by that. Some actually produce, some genotypes actually produce longer guts when they eat meat than uh, when they eat detritus. Now that seems pretty clearly maladaptive, right? Um, but we think that, that that's the fuel that's basically driving this plasticity-led evolution. You know, and that selection is going to act on that variation and then favor those genotypes that are producing the appropriate phenotypes for those uh, given environmental circumstances. And so there's no, there's no claim here that we're making that the plasticity is necessarily adaptive at the start. Some of it may be, but some of it may not be. And that that then just serves as, again, the fuel for driving the, the plasticity-led evolution. That's a really interesting point, David. Is there, I mean, I want to try to put back something that you said with your points about Scaphiopus. Is there anything in the current geographic range of that species or in its history that we know of that could make sense of its plastic responses? I mean, that they may have been or in some contexts would be adaptive? Well, that's a great question, Marty. Um, they they face a lot of the same circumstances that Spia does because they live in a lot of the same environments. We think the reason why, and this is totally arm wavy, but we think the reason for why Scaphiopus has not evolved a carnival morph is they've basically gone in a completely different direction in terms of dealing with the, the situations that, that the frogs face, you know, as larvae in their town in their ponds where they dry up really fast. What Scaphiopus does is they just develop super, super fast. And so it's like they don't even they don't even waste time saying, let's develop in a new morph that's going to allow us to speed up development. They they just incredibly speed up development as that little omnivore morph, if you will. So they can actually go from uh, hatching out to transitioning to land. And at Bob Newman has shown in less than in less than eight days. So that like in 7.9 days. And that that is so fast. I mean, that that. I've always said that must be the fastest developing vertebrate. I don't know a vertebrate that can develop faster than that. It's almost like you can just see them changing before your eyes. And so, you know, with that strategy, it's like it probably doesn't pay to invest a day or two to move the tissues around developmentally to become a carnivore. Uh, this works for them. Now, they come out very, very small. They no doubt they're like oysters, right? They suffer probably super, super high mortality. We think uh, they do have lar much larger clutch sizes, but that seems to work for them. I think, Marty, too, to get at your big question question, bringing up Cam Gallenbor's work, there's been also some follow-ups looking at like um, comparative across bacteria and used to see how often plastic responses are reversed by evolution. So is the response maladaptive and then has to be overcome? And they found lots of evidence for these reversals and for reinforcement. The one caveat to all of that is that there, it's primarily been looking at gene expression responses too. So it's not always clear, at least to me, how those translate into like a higher order phenotypic response. But I think that's something that I pegged a few years ago as one of the emerging frontiers is trying to know what the role of this maladaptive versus adaptive plasticity and as a field, can we figure all this out? I think that's an important frontier. I wanted to ask, circle back to something we talked about at the very beginning, uh, just ask again about cryptic genetic 
variation, which I think you've convinced us is is super important. But if so, we step back from spadefoots and this system of yours. In in general, would you say that there is a ton of cryptic genetic variation out there, and is that getting released under under new new climates, new regimes all the time? Is that is that one of the real fuels for for evolution? Would you say? So there there seems to be a lot of cryptic genetic variation out there. I mean, this the you know the sort of uh, this insight comes back, you know, it's really started like in the 60s by people like Lewontin, you know, and, and when, when he and others went out and started you know, measuring genetic variation in natural populations back then, you know, using allozymes, a technique that nobody's used in decades, right? And they found there was all this genetic variation in natural populations that were just, people were just stunned by it. And, you know, since that time, other studies have shown there seems to be a lot of variation underlying genetic variation, you know, which is often not uh, expressed. And so what's maintaining that variation? There's all kinds of ideas, right? So a lot of it just may be, you know, doesn't have any functional significance at all, but some of it might, some of it may be uh, maintained because of selection varying, you know, over time, you know, selection favoring one phenotype at some point in time and favoring some other phenotype, you know, so fluctuating selection and things like that. But yeah, that's that's really, as we said earlier, that's really the fuel that we sort of think is important in driving this plasticity-led evolution, is that variation is being revealed by selection. This is a very important point, too, because when people hear us talking about plasticity-led evolution, especially people who are not sort of like plasticity people, they start thinking that we're talking about some sort of weird process that fits outside the realm of sort of standard evolutionary theory. And that's not what we're doing. I mean, this this is this as Nick said earlier, this is selection acting on, you know, genetic variation or certainly heritable variation and leading to adaptive evolution, which is the standard model going back to Darwin, you know, over 150 years ago. And so there's nothing new about this really at some level. So yeah, to to help hedge bets on this too, I've gotten away from saying genetic variation for things and just say heritable variation to help appease folks like Marty who are looking at epigenetics and Russell Bondaransky and transgenerational effects and stuff because it's it seems like it's becoming more clear that some of these plastic things aren't always driven fully by genetics too. It's or saying developmental variation or something like that. Well great guys, this has been wonderful. Before wrapping, we we give everybody a chance to sort of touch on anything that we didn't hit. Is there anything that you'd like to say that we didn't give you the opportunity to say? I'll just say uh, really quickly to follow up on what Nick said at the end there, because I, I loved your paper, Marty, and it's just such neat stuff, is that, you know, my guess is that 10, 20 years from now, when we look at this, we're going to see that epigenetic variation does play a really important role in this process. And so Nick and I have talked about this as sort of a you know, epigenetic variation can sort of serve as a bridge, you know, between within generation plasticity on the one hand to sort of genetic assimilation on the other. And it's, it's like speciation. We're not saying it's always going to go in that direction. You know, you don't know it's going to go to completion. But during those early stages, uh, before sort of you get sort of genetic hardening, if you want to think about it that way, you may sort of initially get the sort of epigenetic hardening. And so you can kind of think about it, sort of use this phrase epigenetic assimilation, you know, that might start happening, you know, where, where the, the phenotype be initially is stabilized by things like, you know, methylation uh, mechanisms like that be before you get an allelic change. And so that's, I think that's something that I'd really like to see more people looking into that and seeing if you can find systems where you get range expansions, you know, finding evidence for this kind of uh, transition. Yeah, I guess my last thought would be just, I want to note 
a few areas I think people could start looking into in the field. Maybe not me, but other people that are listening to this. I think an important thing that we still don't know is what a genetic or epigenetic or molecular signature of this whole process would look like, or even genetic assimilation, or when plasticity, increased plasticity evolves, is there some generalizable feature that we can find, or is it all idiosyncratic, system-specific? From my reading of the literature, it seems like genetic assimilation is often in downstream effector genes, but we, again, we don't know if that's always the case. I think another ongoing area is un better understanding costs and limits of plasticity and how those influence its evolution. Because as David mentioned earlier, lots of models and theories says costs are really important for plasticity's evolution, especially its loss, but they've been hard to detect. And so what's going on there as opposed to limits of plasticity. So if you're expressing a trait constitutively, is it already a better form than a plastically induced version? So I think trying to figure out those issues with either modeling efforts and or more functional genetic tests and natural populations or lab populations, I think is a good frontier for the field. And of course, studying epigenetic potential, because I did like your paper as well, Marty. Thanks. <laughs> I think that that helps address part of this issue is seeing what's actually happening in the organism that could be driving these patterns, because a lot of our conversation and what Dave and I have talked about obviously has been high with phenotypic level primarily with the assumption that there's genetic or developmental changes. But now I think we're to the point where the case has been made that this can happen in nature and it can be important. Let's work out what's actually happening under the hood. Yeah, and let's, let's make, let's sort of get to a point where plasticity can be sort of mainstreamed within biology and not get sort of hung up on Lamarck. You know, we proved Lamarck wrong, you know, when, which of course that's not true, right? I mean, there's all sorts of misunderstandings there. Lamarckian, so-called Lamarckian inheritance does occur. And of course, Lamarck was not the one who really came up with that idea. He just accepted an idea that around for two millennia. I just, it, it would be nice to see plasticity sort of be incorporated into standard evolutionary theory without calls for overturning standard evolutionary theory, but also without calls for saying, you know, keep away, you're going to, you know, ruin everything. And so, um, you know, just, just understanding that phenotypes are complex things and they're, they're almost always a product of genes working with environments. All right. Well, thanks so much, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, thanks guys. It was great, great to have you on the show. All right. Bye-bye guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like it, well, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. We also wanted to give a shout out to one of our most dedicated patrons. Thank you so much to Gilbert Miller for your generosity and patronage. It's people like you who keep the show growing. On the next episode, we talk to Paige Harden about her new book, The Genetic Lottery. Paige argues that luck plays a large role in lifetime educational attainment and income. We talk with her about genetic effects on human behaviors and whether ideas from evolutionary biology might provide new perspectives on social issues in humans. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Also thanks to R.B. Smith for writing the script, and Jordan Greer, Kyle Smith, Natasha Damright, and Brad Van Paraden for helping produce this episode, and Keating Shimeri for producing our awesome cover art. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello.